Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. As a cognitive scientist, I cannot accept the cynical view that the human brain is a basket of delusions. Hunter-gatherers, our ancestors and contemporaries, are not nervous rabbits, but cerebral problem-solvers, a list of the ways in which we're stupid can't explain why we're so smart. These are the words of Professor Steven Pinker in his latest book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters, in which he argues that we are, as a species, more Mr. Spock than Homer Simpson. I am delighted to welcome him. Professor Steven Pinker, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you. Stephen Schopenhauer on authorship, as you will know, observe that there are two kinds of writers, those who write for the sake of writing and those who write because they have something they want to say. The body of your work leads me to think you are the latter. So let me begin by asking you straight up, what did you set out to say with rationality? I wanted to explain some of the major tools of rationality that don't come naturally to us. Logic, probability, correlation and causation, game theory, Bayesian reasoning, namely calibrating your degree of confidence in a belief according to the strength of evidence, and a couple more. I also wanted to try to explain why a species as rational as ours seems to be vulnerable to so much nonsense. Why (laughs) are there so many conspiracy theories And why is there so so much medical quackery and fake news and belief in paranormal phenomena? Mm. I also want to make the case that rationality, far from being in tension with social justice and and moral progress, is a major driver of those ideals. You explain, in part, the paradox of QAnon and flat earthers and creationists and conspiracies existing while supporting the the rule of all that rationality is an inherent trait of our species by separating out the things people know as opposed to the things they believe. You said once, for instance, that believing there is a God is in a different sphere to knowing that you have milk in the fridge. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes. The, uh, I, I began with an observation from Bertrand Russell that it's undesirable to believe a proposition when there are no grounds whatsoever for supposing it is true. Mm-hmm. Now, that might sound trite and obvious and banal, but in fact, it's a radical manifesto because many beliefs that people hold, they hold because of their moral value, their entertainment value, their value in mobilizing and uh, empowering the tribe or the, the coalition that you belong to. And the reason is that for most of our history as a species, we didn't have any way to find out the truth for beliefs beyond our everyday existence. What was the origin of the universe? What is the cause of fortune and misfortune? What really happens in palaces and uh, corporate boardrooms. Before we had history, before we had science, these were unknowable. And so you might as well uh, entertain yourself with uh, uplifting myths. And we retain that mindset. I think a lot of people's beliefs in uh, conspiracy theories aren't so much commitments that they are factually true, but rather statements about the moral turpitude of your enemies. So if you claim to believe that Hillary Clinton ran a child sex ring out of the basement of a pizzeria, it isn't so much that you 
are committed to, to, to that having happened. I mean, the people who believe it didn't call the police, but rather the belief, well, that's the kind of thing she could do. And so whether or not she did it, she's capable of it. Boo, Hillary. And that's the function <laughs> that, that, uh, that that belief holds. So there's an element of mischief making in it, is what you're saying. I think we see it as mischief because in the spirit of Bertrand Russell, we think that beliefs are things that, that, that you should have grounds for, for uh, believing to be true. But uh, there's a whole different mindset that says what you believe, you believe for its its moral and political value. I find that personally upsetting. I think you should only believe things that are true, that you can say, I hate Hillary, but that should be distinguished from statements of actual fact. But I think the, the human tendency is not to make that hard and fast distinction, but to say that beliefs, especially when it comes to realms that, uh, that, that we don't have to deal with in our physical everyday experience, Mm. Their myth and story and legend and rumor are as good as vetted fact. And conspiracy theories aren't the only example. Religious beliefs are another. Founding myths of nations with, with their heroes and gods are yet another. Historical fiction is another. Wouldn't it be a little bit pedantic to criticize Shakespeare for putting words into the mouth of Henry V uh, when he couldn't know what Henry V said? Well, we say, you know, it's, it's fiction. We don't, uh, we can pretend that he said it and not have to commit yeah. ourselves to is that can I ask you is that a bit of a cheat because it basically allows you to claim the rationality trait for the entire species despite all these things happening i propose to you an alternative explanation that the power of reason is a spectrum and that some in the species are better at it than other in the species. Is it, in a sense, an elegant way for you to avoid saying that some people are quite stupid? Well, a couple of things. Certainly some people are less rational than others. It's not the same as being stupid, because to the extent that we can measure rationality, its correlation with intelligence is positive, but it's far less than 100%. There are stupid people who are rational, there are smart people who are irrational. And when it comes to uh, certain kinds of beliefs, like especially politicized beliefs, distortions that make your own side look good, mm. smart people are as susceptible to it as duller people. And I don't think it's the case. Uh, there, there probably is a weak correlation between belief in conspiracy theories and IQ, but it is a weak correlation. And in fact, a recent survey published in the Washington uh, or po popularized in the Washington Post showed that 90% of Americans believe in at least one conspiracy theory, one, one false conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. that is. So I think it isn't just irrationality. And the people who believe in conspiracy theories, it's not as if they are incapable of holding a job or filling out their income taxes or getting their kids to school on time. There seems to be some compartmentalization in people's beliefs, where you can believe all kinds of crazy mythological beliefs at the same time that you're a rational person in the conduct of your everyday life. Then there is the issue of the, the pendulum, I guess, swinging the other way, a, a place where we believe nothing and we question everything. And I'm not saying that's bad per se, but just a few days ago, I shared a, a statement that Donald Trump had made on the death of General Powell. And so many people found it so outlandish, they refused to believe it was real. They became convinced it was a hoax, even though it was on the Reuters feed. 
if the concept of a reliable source disappears, can an individual personally verify every element of their newsfeed, of their world, of what forms their views? Well, certainly not, because we, we don't have access to the documents and records and archives. In the case of science, we neither have direct access to the data, nor could most of us understand it for most scientific fields. So indeed, we've got to have the conviction that when Reuters says something, it's likely to be true. Hmm. Or when there's a scientific consensus, it's likely to be true. Now, of course, it's not guaranteed to be true because no one, not even Reuters, is infallible. But we have reason to put trust in them because their reputation depends on their accuracy. So that gives them an incentive to be objective and accurate. We know, or at least we should know, that journalists who work for an organization like, like uh, Reuters have, uh, have to follow certain guidelines, like getting an independent verification for a quote or an attribution to have claims fact-checked by a fact-checking department or, and, and checked by an editor. Uh, so both the internal workings and the overall track record can make certain sources trustworthy. And we have no choice but to trust some of them. None of us can verify everything for ourselves. Which is why I think the, the sort of attendant attack on sources that came with Brexit or came with Trump, you know, the attack on journalists, on academics, it is something that goes to the heart of this. Because in many ways, my rationality depends on the quality of information that I get. That's right, isn't it? Very much. Um, and even when it comes to empirical scientific propositions, none of us is, or very, very, very few of us have expertise in the relevant science to be mm. able to check the facts ourselves. And in fact, surveys of the degree of scientific knowledge of people who affirm or deny scientific consensus on issues like evolution and human-made climate change show that, in fact, the people who have the correct opinions, that is, the ones that are aligned with the scientific consensus, actually don't know any more science than the people who deny it. Mm. If you ask people who believe in climate change what causes it, you'll get crazy answers like, uh, oh, doesn't it have something to do with toxic waste dumps? Uh, maybe there's a plastic straws that end up in the ocean. Uh, they have a, a kind of a core, crude sense of green, but it's not as if they understand the, uh, the, the physics and chemistry of the greenhouse effect. But it's about selecting the right sources. They're the people who trust the scientific establishment. Conversely, the people who deny human-made climate change don't trust them. They, they go to their own sources. And in fact, the only thing that predicts belief in, in climate change, or the main thing that predicts it, is just how far to the left or the right you are on the political spectrum. The farther you are to the right, the more you deny human climate change. Now, you also are quite keen, I think it's fair to say, on the concept of universal realism. Can you explain that a little? Yeah, that's the term that I give to that conviction of Bertrand Russell's, that we should treat all our statements as... Uh, about the real world and about reality and care whether they are true or false. That is, we might be mistaken. Some of our beliefs may be false, but there is a way of showing whether they're true or false. And by universal, I mean beliefs about everything, such as does God exist? Such as how did the universe originate? Such as 
white as misfortune strike some people, mm-hmm. such as what went on in the White House when Lyndon Johnson decided to escalate the war in Vietnam. Questions like that, we should treat not as just rallying cries or myths that make, make us feel good or that entertain us, but we should try to get to the bottom of whether they're true or false. It's not a common view. I think it has to be acquired and, and felt. I think the vast majority of humans do not subscribe to universal realism. And I think it's actually quite often liberals in my political space that are a little bit shy of going into areas that they consider cultural, if that makes sense. Logic of that kind is quite an unforgiving thing, right? It's made of hard material and has sharp corners. How do you reconcile that with compassion? How do we learn to distinguish the delusions, which we all hold on to, that are essential to one's psychological cohesion and those that must be challenged? Otherwise, and I think the parallel with Mr. Spock is interesting. You become someone whose reason is merciless and alienating. You become less human by some measures rather than more. I, I don't think so. I don't see what's illogical about compassion. If you think clearly, if you don't make blunders in reasoning, why would that make you less compassionate? In fact, it could make you more compassionate because you realize that other people's existence and, and interests are no less valuable than, than your own. Uh, that it's just an accident that you happen to be you, but your well-being and someone else's don't differ in in, in uh, moral status. But you moderate that, right? You don't go up to someone at a funeral who believes that there is some afterlife. You don't go up to their family and go, actually, you'll find there is no such thing, because that's insensitive and hurtful to do in that context, even though it's perfectly rational and still true. Uh, yes, uh, clearly, and I, ha- and I have found myself in that very situation. And, and of course, that is not the occasion in which you, you to have a, a, a theological discussion. The fact that you are rational is separate from the question of, must you insist that other people be rational in all their beliefs at all times? So if your goal is to have warm human relationships, and why shouldn't that be your goal? Then the question should I try to make that person rational by my lights on this issue right now, might very well have the answer, no. (laughs) So what happens if there are sections of society, and in that I include corporate sections of society, you know, there are companies so big that they can now absolutely guarantee they will always be on top. What is the impetus on them to continue to act morally? There are two questions we should distinguish is what would define morality for them and what's in it for them to act moral? That is, could they uh, sociopathically defy what they themselves might agree is moral? And, And of course, some people do. There are sociopaths and there are sociopathic corporations. In terms of what would make it in their interests, it's that even powerful corporations depend to various extents on permissions and cooperations of of governments, citizenries, of people who could vandalize their property, who could refuse to buy their products, who could support governments that seek to constrain their activities, who could prevent them from expanding into a a piece of land that they might expand into. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, and corporate corporations care deeply about their reputation for all these reasons. I don't know if there's a corporation that doesn't care about how people tr uh, think of it. Now, of course, the truly sociopathic thing to do would therefore be to cultivate a campaign of greenwashing or whitewashing yeah. to make it. But it, what it shows is that at least they have the, the uh, clearly they have the incentive if they have public relations departments. And in, in the long run, the best way to cultivate a reputation for being a good citizen is to, to be a good citizen. Now, I know you're also interested in language. As a matter of fact, it was the, your initial area of study and the subject of your, of your first couple of books, wasn't it? I keep going back to a long read in the New Yorker magazine, I think it was, where someone toured sort of Trump heartlands and found that this concept kept coming up again and again where Trump supporters describe their opponents as words people. Is there a danger that a book like this merely contains a sort of array of weapons with which educated or conventionally smart people can hit those they consider inferior over their head? I, what I'm trying to say is politics is often seen as a battle for hearts and minds. Is there a way for reason to appeal to hearts? You could, of course, if you're a political strategist, set up the problem in reason of what messages will appear, appeal to hearts. In fact, we know that those people exist because politics is crawling with strategists <laughs> to, try to try to figure out exactly that. What themes should our candidate emphasize in his or her speeches? What images should we have in our ads? For better or worse, appealing to hearts can itself be an intellectual problem. Now, you know, ideally, uh, you know, and, and, that, and that, that can be quite cynical, of course, and, and, and it often is. It is absolutely true that many people uh, are not persuaded by extended arguments, might even be suspicious of them, and mm. it may be the images or the anecdotes that win them over, in which case a successful politician should learn how to package defensible policies in an appealing framework. <laughs> That'd be the day. <laughs> well, we know that, so let's say, Franklin Roosevelt commanded you know, enormous uh, affection and respect from the people as he was implementing policies, you know, at least some of which we today we recognize as, as uh, mm. beneficial. Uh, of course, he also had enemies in his own time. But I think a successful, for better or worse, the successful politicians are the ones that have ideas, but also know how to uh, reach people, uh, ones that we may disagree with, like Ronald Reagan, who was an effective uh, yeah. uh, politician and, and did have ideas. We may disagree with the ideas, but he certainly had a coherent vision of how, what of the role of government. Stephen, these big arc narratives that I think have become your sort of calling card broadly go along the lines that overall things are largely heading in the right direction. And you support that with evidence. But is there a danger that looking in that holistic way can be rather complacent? The reason that things are largely heading in the right direction might be because at key turning points, people recognized that they were going in the wrong direction and fought to course correct. So in that context, isn't a sort of passive optimism a little bit glib? that, oh, don't worry, things work out in the end, and a little bit privileged in some ways, you know, because they may be heading in the right direction generally, but they're not heading in the right direction for 
the gay man in Russia or a woman in Afghanistan? How do you answer that? Well, if the suggestion is that we should have a false understanding of history, then I would say, no, we shouldn't have a false understanding. That is, if, um, if you think that lifespan, if you want to deny that lifespans have lengthened, that war deaths have declined and actually say something that's false to fire people up, I, I don't think that's a good strategy. I think we should recognize reality, whether well, they're been it's not necessarily It's not necessarily about denying the overall trajectory. It's just that, you know, in economics, when you smooth out a graphic, it looks like a curve. But if you look at the actual thing, it's, it's full of jagged edges. The fact that the trajectory overall is headed in the right direction, what I'm saying is depends on moment by moment ensuring that the the course you have plotted is correct. Well, yes. No, in fact, the thing is, that is the argument. That is, if you, if you read into my books, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, that there is some force that automatically and inevitably makes us continuously better, and it will just continue to happen by itself. That's exactly what I deny. The universe doesn't have such a force. The universe is governed by the second law of thermodynamics, in which things fall apart, except unless uh, energy and information are applied, that human nature gives us motives to exploit and punish one another. To the extent that progress has happened, it's precisely because we, we have recognized problems and tried to, to uh, solve them, and indeed implied re- applied reason and rationality to do so. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean to fight. When we eliminated uh, smallpox, it wasn't that we fought bad people. It's that we invented vaccines and programs to, to spread them. Likewise, the, the reason that hunger has been decimated is not that there was a war that took food from people who had excess and redistributed yeah. to people who had less. It's because of the Green Revolution and because of distribution networks. Sometimes there there, there, there clearly had to be fights. There, there were struggles. There was a protest. But the fact that we proactively had to recognize problems and solve them is the only explanation of how we've enjoyed progress. So it is, it is not the case that, if, that we have to deny that there have been improvements in order to continue to make the world better. On the contrary, the existence of progress is a phenomenon that we have to explain, and the explanation is human agency and human ingenuity. In fact, I would argue the, that it's the other way around, that if, if people are unaware that progress has taken place, they, they can be liable either to reactionary politics, like everything is getting worse, let's try to uh, yeah. turn the clock back to a golden or age. Or apathy. Make, well, yes, it could be. In fact, there, there are several dangers. One of them is reactionary politics. And of course, we saw that with Donald Trump, make America great again. The uh, America is, is in a state of carnage. Uh, it can be apathy. Let's just enjoy ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make things better. We, let's be romantic to try to improve things and be utopian. Uh, the best we can do is enjoy ourselves and make a good life for our, our own family. Or radicalism, that the whole system is so evil and corrupt and beyond reform that we're best off just burning it to the ground and, and because anything that rises up out of the ashes is bound to be better than what we have now. So I, I argue that actually recognizing progress that has occurred 
and identifying its causes, that is, not leaping to the mystical conclusion that it happened by itself. I adamantly deny that. In fact, mm. one of the reasons my books are so long is having established progress as a fact, I then turn to the question of... Yeah, you go into counterexamples, yeah. What we're right. And indeed, of course, the jagged parts of the curve we have to look at as well, because they are just as informative in terms of what does not lead to progress. So in the case of war, for example, what led, even though there's been a, a bumpy trajectory downwards since 1945, there have been sickening reversals, like in the 1960s and 70s, when the number of civil wars went way up. Mm-hmm. And we can ask, what went wrong then? Professor Stephen Pinker, truly, it has been a, a pleasure to uh, get a chance to pick at your big, beautiful brain. And if anything I mentioned is the seed to your next book, I want a percentage. <laughs> well, thank, thanks very much, and thank you for having me. Rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, why it matters, is out now. It would make a rather gorgeously loaded Christmas gift to any unreasonable loved ones. <laughs> Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. Let me leave you with some slightly abridged words from Stephen Pinker's book, Rationality. Homo sapiens means wise hominin, and in many ways we have earned the specific epithet of our Linnean binomial. Our species has dated the origin of the universe, plumbed the nature of matter and energy, decoded the secrets of life, unraveled the circuitry of consciousness, and chronicled our history and diversity. We have applied this knowledge to enhance our own flourishing, blunting the scourges that immiserated our ancestors for most of our existence. Even when the ancient bane of pestilence rose up anew in the 21st century, we identified the cause within days, sequenced its genome within weeks, and administered vaccines within a year. The cognitive wherewithal to understand the world and bend it to our advantage is not a trophy of Western civilization; It's the patrimony of our species. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreo. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.